guys. Uh, <laughs> I'm an idiot. Welcome back. Holy smokes. Less than 70 friends. We are in John 2. Uh, kicking off this book. Uh, yesterday, Kyle was talking about John 1. What a cool thing. And we are at John chapter 2. And we're just going to dive right into this. Um, keeping on the same track of talking as Kyle was diving into the Son of God. Uh, you know, in Luke, we were talking about Jesus as the Son of Man. And then here we are, bam, a new, a new fresh perspective from the Apostle John, the Beloved, bringing the heat with the Son of God. Glory to His name. So we, uh, today, guys, I'm going to kind of break this up into two sections. And really, it's this, I'm not even doing it. The Scripture does it itself. I'm just going to kind of walk you through and coach you along a little bit on what John 2 is all about. First off, we're going to be talking about Jesus as the miracle worker. Once again, I am so sorry for my horrible penmanship. Um, it's pretty bad. And then the second part that we're going to be talking about today is Jesus, the Son of God, who has all authority. John chapter 2 verse 1, it starts off with this, on the third day a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And so kind of picking up here, you guys know this story of when Jesus shows up to go to a wedding that his mom is at, uh, probably multiple family members are at. Actually there, we'll get into this in a sec, but it says this, that, that in the previous chapter that he was hanging out with John the Baptist in Bethany. I'm just kind of just trying to decipher this a little bit. I'm not sure exactly where they're coming from, but because it's about a two-day span that Jesus is talking about this in John 2, I'm thinking they were probably hanging out in Bethsaida, which is about 20 to 30 miles away, which is a two-day journey for these guys to get to. So picking up with that, on the third day, a wedding was taking place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Someone say, Mama. Nobody said it. That's all right. I feel alone right now, boys. I wish you would sing with me. Just say, Mama, I'm going to a wedding. This is good. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So Jesus is calling out these fellas, and they're like, the boys are back in town. That's the second time I've done it in two teachings. Thank you very much. So these guys are coming and crashing this wedding. Now, you know, some people even speculate, well, you know, it was a two-day journey from Bethsaida. Maybe it was actually a little bit longer, and they, they, they ended up getting there a little bit late. So they're kind of crashing this party. And yeah, so here we go. Let's go to verse 2. Jesus and his disciples were invited, invited to the wedding as well. Now, some people think that, hey, this actually could be because of mother mary's role in the wedding some people think that this could be james the brother of jesus's wedding it's kind of an interesting thought uh either way this dude or dudette whoever they were connected to they were strongly connected not only to jesus but these other disciples as well and so that's where it's picking up in verse three it says this when the wine ran out jesus's mother told him they don't have any wine now i don't know about you guys but uh you know, especially I think of my my grandmother and my great grandmother, who would always be like, oh, "Josh, could you just sing a little song for us? Could you just sing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to us?" At, when I was five years old, and they got the video camera on me, and there's this kid, uh, and I was singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I, my grandmother and my great grandmother were always putting me up to this random stuff. Well, we got the same situation with Mama Mary. She is excited that her boy is in town at the wedding, and she is like, hmm, I think I might have him do a little something-something. So when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any, have any wine. So check this out. 
in Luke, uh, we were just talking a couple days ago, in Luke 23, I think I was doing the teaching, and, and uh, we were talking about just how Jesus is the son of man in Luke, and it's really highlighted. We're now in this context in John, he's really focused on uh, as the son of God. And so, part of the son of man is, he had a mama, he had friends, he got hungry, he, had, he got tired, he had all these different emotions. I relate to that humanity side, but Jesus had a mama, and his mama loved him, and they had a special relationship. And we're going to get into this right here. Look at this, verse 4, Kevin, if you could put that up. He says this, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? So this could either be really sassy and like a snarky teenage what is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? No, but this is how I would take it. He says, just in a very gentle, loving, playful banter with his mama, I think he said, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? I just think they had this really unique relationship. Mary knew exactly who Jesus was. Come on, somebody. She knew that he was the son of God. The scripture says that she treasured and stored up all these things in her heart that she knew about Jesus. She knew the prophecies. She gave birth to the living word. They had this unique dynamic and a unique relationship that was very, very special. Just like a mother to her son in normal life would be. This was heightened by, I mean, a thousand percent because she knew that he was indeed the Messiah. Going to verse four, it says, what concern, uh, sorry, we were just there. What concern, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. And so kind of a little interesting remark yet, he knows that his time to be revealed as the Lord and the Messiah hasn't really showed up on the scene yet. It's not time yet. But he's just going to give a little give a little love to his mom and just the power of a mother's persuasion or a parent's persuasion. This is so fun. Now look at verse 5. Do whatever he tells you. His mother told the servants. So again, this, again, this, this, vo- this verse kind of points out the playfulness of the mother and son relationship. He totally had said, no, I don't want to do it. But you know how moms are, and they just kind of force you into doing things that potentially make you a little uncomfortable. I don't think Jesus was uncomfortable because he knew exactly who he was. But listen, she says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Mother Mary had great faith. She knew exactly who her son is. Now going to this next verse, this is really fun. Verse 6, it says, Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Now, oh yeah, let's do the next verse because then I'll go back. So John 2, 7 says this, Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So then they filled them to the brim. Okay, go back. So first off, Mama Mary, she had a key role in this wedding. I don't know if she was a coordinator. Again, I don't know if she was the mother of James, the brother of Jesus, and it was his wedding. But she had some kind of servant role where people were taking cues from Mary. So anyway, what's really cool is that Mary, she had the faith. But then these, these, these servants who she says, do whatever this guy tells you, that was like a crazy level of faith in my mind that these people would just start taking orders. And then she went as far as saying, get these six, six stone water jars and, uh, 
and and go fill the jars. Oh, actually, Jesus said this. Sorry, Jesus told them go fill the fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. That is a crazy amount of faith in my mind. Now, just kind of going back in the context of what's going on here, they had these purification jars, which were these large stone cisterns. Cisterns, and ceremonially, guys, in the Jewish culture, the only vessel that would be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, are things that are made of stone. If it was an earthen vessel, like a clay pot or something, those could be defiled. But the one thing that couldn't be defiled is a stone cistern, a stone water pot. Now, guys, these aren't just like a little, little pitcher of like little water. Like we're talking, these are th- these are big things. There's 30 to 40 gallons of water that go into these purification jars. Now, to be ceremonially clean, they had to take this water and they would have to wash their hands before each meal so that they could be clean. When Jesus asked them to fill these six water pots up with water, it wasn't drinking water. It was water that was water to purify and to cleanse and to kind of wash off. But this probably wasn't the stuff that you would be drinking every day. Now look at this, verse 8. He said, He said to them, now draw out some and take it to the chief servant. And they did. Again, guys, the crazy amount of faith that's set by Mother Mary, that's set by the servants. And now they're fixing to go give a a, a glass of this to the the head servant. Verse 9, it says this, when the chief servant tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. (laughs) <laughs> probably glad about that. Right? <laughs> and though the servants who had drawn the water knew it, and then they give it to him just as Jesus had commanded. Now, guys, I do not want to overlook the faith that these guys were walking in. It was a crazy amount of faith. Like, okay, yeah, Jesus. People talk about numerology and numerology and eschatology mixed and all this kind of stuff. But I want to tell you this, guys, that a lot of people have said that, oh, the number six is the number of man because people would speculate in Genesis uh, when man is created, he was created on the sixth day. Well, the problem with, and people would say that's the number of man. But the problem with that is the animals were also created on the sixth day. To me, over and over throughout the scriptures, the number six is actually more, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on somebody's toes, I don't want to pop your bubble, but the number six in scripture really has a lot of connotations to labor. And so think about it. God created everything in six days. And then on the seventh day, there was a Sabbath rest. He would tell the Israelites over and over and over again that when you guys, every seventh year, don't put crops in the field. Don't, don't sow seed. Let the, let the seventh year, let the land rest and breathe. So over and over and over, you see the number six related to labor and work. And guys, I think as a prophetic act, it's it's no joke, it's no mistake, the fact that these things were ceremonial jars that were filled up to have water that would cleanse and purify the people. He changes that Old Testament thing, that thing of, man, you got to be clean. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. When the chief servant tasted the water after he become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, uh, who the servants who had drawn the water knew, we covered that. He called the groom, and the next part says this, and told him, everyone sets out the wine, uh, the fine wine first. Then, after the people have drunk freely, the inferior. 
but you have kept the fine wine until now. So guys, it's more than just getting the party started uh, in this amazing true story that Jesus did at this wedding. It's really about Jesus coming right out of the gate. He's saying, this is an old method. This is an old thing that would make you clean. This is the old model. This is the six stone jars that was like the number of labor and rest. And Jesus says, now I want you to come and receive from me the wine that will give you life. Jesus said in John 6, that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have true life within you. And so Jesus is, again, just trying to set this cool thing up where it becomes all about his blood. It's not about striving in the flesh. It's not about doing all that kind of stuff, but it's about trusting in his blood. Again, it's a, it's a prophetic act that he did that people didn't really get it probably till years after. So, Okay, let's go to verse 11. And it says this, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed him. Isn't that sweet? Like just the simple faith meant that this, this miracle happened and his glory was on display. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother and brothers and disciples and they stayed there only a few days. Again, this is kind of touching on, it says his brothers and mother. Now, those were pointed out. He probably had sisters as well. And so here's the thing that kind of, again, points to that this wedding in Cana was probably a family affair. Somebody, somebody that they were really tight with, uh, it, it, they had all gone. And so they went to Capernaum. Now, kicking it over to verse 13, it says this, that the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, here's where it gets a little flip-flopped. Some people are like, man, this is really incongruent and inconsistent with the other Gospels, how the book of John is set up. And because they're like, you know, first off, it's kind of weird because there is harmony among all four Gospels on this account. So, what we just read, that was the only gospel. John's gospel was the only one that talked about this miracle at the wedding of Cana. But then, for this part, it kind of switches, and it's early on. Most, most uh, actually, all of the other gospels, this story here, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for Passover, happened at the end, uh, toward the end of the book, before he was crucified. And so, just so you know, I'll just say this. I'm going to read here for a minute. At times, John's gospel seems to be chronologically jumbled lining them up next to the other three Gospels. Some agree that John's Gospel is out of sequence, although an early manuscript, oh, as though, listen to this, as though an early manuscript got dropped and the pages were put back in the wrong order. So somebody along the road, they were like, oh man, we got, we got the Gospel of, of John. And it just kind of disheveled all over the place. And ah, oh, crud, how do I, this seems like a good place to... And so some people, they come up with that kind of hypothesis of like, man, somebody must have tripped and messed up the order. Others have come up with far more complicated theories, such as, again, this is probably not important to anybody, but for a nerd like me, I love this kind of stuff, where they're like, each of the different gospel writers had a different style of writing. And so John kind of had this different kind of mishmashed, out-of-sequence way. It's kind of like me trying to tell a story where I'm like a cat wandering all over the place, you know? So I can really relate to John. I think that's why I like him, because he's a little bit all over the map. And then there are other people who just don't care and just don't see it as a problem at all. So moving right along, it says this. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In verse 14, in the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, 
And he also found the money changers sitting there, moving right along. So after making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. Come on, Jesus. You get your righteous indignation on. Glory to God. Look at this, verse 16, moving right along. He says, he told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Kevin, if you would, may I go to Psalm 69.9. Again, this is just kind of a reiteration of what Jesus literally just said. The Bible just said, it is written. Psalm 69.9 says, because zeal for your house has consumed me. And the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So Jesus is fed up with, again, almost like the beginning of this chapter where Jesus changes that ceremonial washing water in those stone pots that really represented Old Testament law. And he comes with a new thing, with turning it into wine. It's very similar here, where he's like, this old way of doing it, this this whole process, it ain't working. I am going to be the new covenant. I'm going to give my blood. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Pretty sweet. So here's the, the question, though, is this, guys, just to, to ponder on this. In verse 17, so zeal for your house will consume me. Why was he so angry? Why was he so ticked off? Number one, there's a, there's a couple different things in play here. I'd say this, that worshipers on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover since they couldn't bring animals from afar, they would get to the temple and inside they would purchase animals. They'd purchase oxen. They would purchase lambs. They'd purchase pigeons and doves. They'd get all this stuff to make them again have their sins washed away with the sacrifice. The problem is, is that Jesus was completely not, not down with this. I mean, he, uh, Basically, these, these people, these, these, these guys in the temple, they were extorting the prices of everything. They were jacking up the prices and, and basically ripping off the people when all they had come to do was to worship God. And these guys were making a buck off of it. Come on, this kind of sounds like sometimes even some modern preachers that I know that, you know, not to throw out names, but I'm just like, man, this is, this is an epidemic, not only in Old Testament, uh, it, it first, first century Judaism, this is a problem in the American church today, guys, is that we're extorting these prices and we're doing all these things when all God wants is true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And really, it's kind of a detestable thing to the Lord. The second thing why he was ticked was that it was happening in the temple. Man, this is the house of God. This is the house of prayer for all nations. That's what the whole temple was supposed to be about. But instead, he said that it became a den of thieves. This was not the place for this to be happening. You know, it's one thing for it to happen outside in the city somewhere, but this is in the house of God. And it was a little more drastic than a bake sale going on in the church fellowship hall. I mean, like this was like people trying to like, you know, purchase their thing. The third, the third thing was that it, uh, for the for the buyers, not only for the sellers, for the buyers, this was like a cheap grace kind of thing where these guys, if they just ponied up enough money, then they wouldn't have to do the sacrifice. The actual Passover situation back in Deuteronomy, the whole thing was you got to select the best lamb from your flock. You got to select the, the 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 sheep or the goat that has no blemish on it. You got to prepare the, the finest things. You got to bring it to the temple for the sacrifice. 
to celebrate Passover. Kind of a matter of convenience? Totally. So that's what I'm saying, Kev, is like these guys, they were come, it cost them nothing. Remember King David, when he purchased the field, he says, I'm not going to buy anything or I'm not going to receive anything that doesn't cost me something. And to a degree, these guys, even though they were paying something, it really didn't cost them a whole lot uh, spiritually. So verse 18 says this, uh, going on here. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Going back to the whiteboard, we're talking about the son of God, the, the miracle worker in the first part of the chapter. And then in the second chapter, it's all about, man, he has all authority. In Matthew 28, clearly after he's risen, he says this, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. See, he had all the authority. Look at this. And he answers, with, he answers this question. Basically, these guys are saying in verse uh, 18, Mr. Big Stuff, who do you think you are, Mr. Big Stuff? What gives you the right to do this? Why are you messing with us? This is our way. This is our model. And Jesus answered this in verse 19. Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Guys, what is he talking about? Destroy the sanctuary, I'll raise it up in three days. It's actually talking about his own body. Right. But they don't. I don't think they see that. They think about, they're thinking about the bricks and mortar. Totally. And actually, it says they're right there. Uh, it, it, a couple verses down. It says in verse 20, Therefore the Jews said, This sanctuary took 46 years to build. And will you raise it up in three days? And then go to 21. It says, But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. Guys, the people were not at all picking up what he was laying down. They were oblivious. What Kevin said, they were focused on the brick and mortar. They were focused on the thing rather than what was happening in the spiritual atmosphere. They didn't see what was going on. They didn't want to see what was going on. And they just, they were ignorant and they were oblivious. But listen, guys, this, destroy this temple or this sanctuary and in three days I'll raise it up. This sign could only be performed by the Son of God. Right? Kevin, if you could go to John eleven twenty five. I love this scripture. Man, guys, the Son of God, He is the I Am. I'm thinking of an Eddie James song when I think about this painting of just like, man, He is the bread. He is the wine. He's our future, so leave the past behind. He's the shepherd. He's the door. He's the good news to the bound and the poor. Like, this whole thing is about He is the I Am. Look at this in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Guys, he is the I am. The only person who could really fulfill what verse 21, when he was speaking about his, the sanctuary of his body, the only one who could fulfill that is the great I am, God himself, the son of God. Going to verse 20, uh, therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build and you'll raise it up in three days. What, he's, what, they're talking, what, what they're talking about here is that this temple that they're talking about was completed its building in 515 BC. So what they're saying is, this has been our statute, this has been our thing for a couple hundred years now, and it took 46 years to build. Are you kidding me, Jesus? You said that you're going to destroy this thing and then raise it up in three days? They were not seeing with spiritual eyes. They totally did not get it. In verse 21, he's speaking about the sanctuary of his body. Guys, uh, Kevin, if you would, go to 1 Corinthians six nineteen, And there's other scriptures that are talking about the temple of the Holy Spirit. But look at this, guys. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, to whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
So guys, once again, Jesus is setting the template here. He's setting the template. He's saying, I'm aware that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon him, was in him. And he was showing us a glimpse of what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And he's saying that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. Verse 22 says this, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Guys, on our handy-dandy wristbands and our Bibles with time to revive, guys, my, one of my favorites is the green part, Romans 10, 9, and 10. What does it say? It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So guys, that's what this is really all about here is like they, they understood and they believed that God would raise him from the dead. Huh. And that's, that's, that was the gospel. And they moved forward and they changed the world with that simple belief. Winding down here, verse 23 says this. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 24, Jesus, however, would not... Interesting verse, guys. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And verse 25, because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. When you look at the scriptures, there was only a few people that really, like, Jesus gave full disclosure and the full meal deal to. Who were some people that God really revealed himself to? Can you guys think, in the New Testament, who were some people? Well, you got James, John, and Peter, the transfiguration totally absolutely kyle's going to dig into this about john 4 i think of that too for whatever reason jesus kind of gave not a full disclosure but at least a, a a little window into the one that you're talking about is me i'm the messiah he revealed himself to the woman at the well there was other people for sure i think peter john and james got the full meal deal and then there was others that he couldn't trust there was others that he could trust but not as intimately like the rest of the twelve there were just people that he could really let in that he felt secure with. And some people he's just like, and at this crowd, you guys, this was a group of people that he was not super feeling like he could really disclose the full thing. So for these religious leaders, he held his cards extremely close and rightfully so, as we know what happens here in just a few chapters. Because he did not need to testify about man, this is verse 25, for he himself knew what was in man. Guys, this is just another pointing to the Son of God. This is another supernatural trait of his sonship. He only did what the Father was doing. He only saw what the Father was seeing. He only heard what the Father was speaking. And so the Father would reveal to him the hearts of man. And he had the ability to see into the soul of every man. He saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's like in John 3 where he sees Nathaniel. He sees Philip. He sees... Simon Peter, he says, from now on, your name is going to be called Cephas. He saw something in another dimension that called them out. But there were some people that he just couldn't trust. And guys, my challenge to you is this today. Are you a person, are we a people that God can trust? Can he fully disclose his lordship to us? Can he fully disclose his personality and his character to us? Or are we going to respond with this attitude of like, what authority do you have? Now, guys, listen. I'm guessing the majority of people listening here uh, and going through this study, you're, you're believers. But guys, I'm just to be honest, for me, 
there are some times that I can't really answer that truly of saying, yeah, you know what? The Lord can trust me. I can be trusted. The Lord wants us to bring us into a deeper uh, revelation of that. So what about you? Do you follow after him to chase signs and wonders? Do you follow after him to pursue a free meal? Do you follow after him for a miracle, for a healing? Or are you going to be like Peter that says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Where else can we go? Nathaniel's response is just like, you're the son of God. Will we truly acknowledge that he is the son of God? So our heart today is just to say, where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. And so guys, uh, just as we wrap up Lesson 60, I'm excited just to be here with you. Thank you again for for tuning in. Uh, The Lord loves you. May you walk fuller in knowing the brilliance and the glory of the Son of God. Thanks. Thanks.